Hey, welcome back. It's episode three, Dropping in Surf Show. Today is May 6, 2020. We are recording from Belmarin Keys and Greenbrae, California. My name is Rob Case. I'm a surfing paddling technique coach, and with me is my friend and doctor of physical therapy, Jim Sigelnik. Jim, what's happening, man? Yeah, Rob, good to be back, dude. Um, not much on this end. Uh, I'm excited to do another interview or conversation with you. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I've, I'm enjoying this. And actually, um, got to thank the audience for sending us a, a few notes to uh, of encouragement that we're actually doing a pretty good job. Um, most, most of it's been really good feedback, and um, it, there was one in particular. There was a little bit of a PS at the bottom of it. Um, they were like, well, I, I know you guys aren't very good at this, uh, as you say, but just, just make sure that Jim shaves his neck. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? What does that mean? And she's like, well, because the audio was kind of scratchy right here. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, that would make sense. Well, the, the neck beard got me. It's failed me before in the past. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure it'll fail me again in the future. But, uh, you know, at least they named a surfboard after it. Oh, yeah, that's right. Have you surfed that before? Um, No, I haven't. I haven't. I haven't surfed a neck beard. I hear it's a good board, though. We've got a buddy at our local break that I think has one. I think Neil has one. I think Neil has one, and um, I couldn't tell you the difference between the Neckbeard and the Neckbeard 2, and uh, what's, the, what's the new one they have that's like the fish design that's like pretty much a Neckbeard 2 DNA. A goatee? Uh, I, I don't know. It's, the name's escaping me, but it's a twin. Um, it's one of their newer models, but it looks pretty fun, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not up on the model. I know we've had conversations about surfboard design. And uh, I'm thinking we might get in into it a little bit today, but cool. I'm not I'm not an expert by any means in terms of dimensions and what everything does. Um, it's more of a feel thing. Well, how's it feel under the feet? Yeah, I I, I agree. I think um, one thing that I've kind of picked up over the years is is kind of giving up on the volume uh, kind of parameter. You know, I think. Uh, five plus years ago I was riding 26 liters and then I was like kind of splitting hairs with 27 28 and I, you know you put a lot of like value in that and then all of a sudden I jumped on like a 30 liter board by accident it was a borrowed board and it was like such a eye-opener for me that I had probably been like maybe riding boards that were under volumed just based on my kind of expectations and and since then, I've jumped on several boards that have been 30 liters, and they felt too kind of clunky. And um, so I think it's like it's like a lot of things, a lot of answers you don't want to hear. It depends, you know, it depends on the rail, depends on the rocker, depends on the template, depends on the fins and the type of surf, and you know, which is why it's fun, right? You just kind of have to trial and error and uh, see what works for you. Yeah. No, no two 30 liter boards are created equal. Yeah, unless those boards are made in Thailand. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Hey, um, do, do you subscribe to Encyclopedia Surfing by uh, Matt Warshaw? I do not, no. no. You should definitely um, get on that. And anybody listening or watching that is not subscribed to that, it's only three bucks a month. 
Um, cool. And Matt does an amazing job at, at, at educating us on the history of surfing as well as just miscellaneous trivia and stuff. It's, it's fascinating. Um, and this last, this last Sunday, he sent out his kind of his weekly newsletter. And in it, it was, it was a lot about Tom Kern. And uh, I just sent you like 20 minutes before we started this, that photo of Tom doing that cutback. So Saw that. I had a specific question about that. So in it, and I'll describe the picture and I'll, I'll pop it up in, in post. But basically he's starting his cutback. He's got his front foot basically 90 degrees to the stringer. His body is facing the nose as he's turn as he's twisting and turning around in his cutback right mm -hmm. so he's got he's got his front leg basically inwardly rotated almost like this he's facing mm -hmm. it and then we talked last week about how we have like the collapsed leg and our back leg mm -hmm. and how messed up that is i guess my general question to you is is surfing the most messed up sport on our body because we have all these like asymmetries and twists that we're doing and we're applying, he's applying force through that turn. There's, I mean, it's gotta be a PT nightmare. Yeah, good question. And um, I'm, I'm just looking at the picture right now for reference and, and, and it'll pop up there for the viewers. And, and uh, 10 years ago, Rob, I probably would have said, yeah, I agree with you. Um, but we've kind of like uh, maybe made a shift in our line of thinking over the last 10 years. And that shift has been maybe towards like from a very biomechanical, biomedical frame of reference, which is like, you know, knee collapse. Uh, don't squat with your knees over your toes. Don't let the arch in your foot collapse. Kind of those things you've you've probably heard that I think have kind of become universal knowledge. Like if you go to a gym and that kind of thing. And uh, now that kind of pendulum has swung to what's more called the biopsychosocial model which is a long kind of way of saying it's complicated because a lot of things, <laughs> um, a lot of things go into why um, someone can surf and perform well or hurt. And so to answer your question, um, I think surfing, and this is a very biased opinion by a modern day physical therapist that happens to be maybe a bit addicted or hooked on surfing, um, I think surfing is one of the most powerful forms of movement there can be and there is no wrong movement, you know? So I don't believe there is bad movement. I think there's, obviously you can get injured, you can fall and those kind of things. Um, but I think uh, last week, I wanna say the world record of deadlifting was broken. And I, I wanna say this guy lifted close to a thousand pounds or over a thousand pounds. One of my one of my coworkers was telling me about it and, um, I've, I've actually worked with patients who have deadlifted uh, 800, um, 600 pounds, 800 pounds. Um, I've worked with some pretty strong guys over the years. And um, that classically would be considered a very dangerous movement. Yeah. Right? So don't lift hefty, heavy weight. You know, that's a common kind of line of thought. And um, these guys uh, trained really hard to build up their tissue tolerance to be able to achieve that. And I think... I think there's something to be said with, you know, that picture that we're looking at here is um, Tom Curran um, has most likely, like other surfers, done that movement 
and nuances of that movement various times over his lifetime and has probably made his body adapt to the strain or the forces um, of that kind of twisting and um, torquing and loading and and, and that kind of thing. And if this was 10 years ago, we'd go, Rob, you're absolutely right. All that twisting and torquing, twisting um, uh, rotation is considered kind of a harsh um, sort of vector of force. And we'd say, yeah, that's where wear and tear happens. That's where the biomedical or the biomechanical model reigns supreme. And so that's going to set you up for injury. And that, with that biopsychosocial model, the pendulum's kind of swung and go, hey, hold on, you know, you can actually train the body to do amazing things. You know, look at what people can do if they put their minds to it. And so um, uh, I think surfing, um, there's a really good quote out there, and I'm going to butcher it uh, now that we're doing this podcast, but it's by a guy named Todd Hargrove. And he says... um, Something about um, human performance or human pain is at least in some part related to this biopsychosocial model, which again signifies there's a mentality component. There's um, something going on with our nervous system that lets us perform and um, feel pain or not. And um, taking calculated risks with movement is a good way to build tolerance. And, and for those Todd Hargrove fans, I totally butchered that quote, but the gist (laughs) I think is there. Like, um, so surfing is very like defiant of like biomechanics, right? We would expect that to break down a knee. We would expect that to break down a hip, but you know, um, it doesn't in a lot of surfers. And, And in fact, some surfers are very resilient to things like chronic low back pain, arguably because they play with risky movement i.e. surfing very long answer no i have so so many questions on like follow-up to that because does that mean that when we train and we prepare or let's say let's let's start with one question let's say you know tom's been surfing his whole life right let's say you have an adult learner now who's who who just started surfing at say age 40 let's just kind of split the difference with some of our clients so 40 they've never made these movements so yeah. does that mean when they're out of the water, are they trying to simulate these same movements to get those repetitions and get those adaptations working sooner? Or do they try to protect their body? Like I, what do we do? You know, if you're, if you're an adult learner. Yeah, that is, that is such a good question, Rob. And, um, I don't really have the exact answer to that, but my line of thinking is such that when we look at the research of sport specific training, we're, we're a bit unsure on how much injury prevention that has with their sport. So like, you know, common sense would say, okay, if I'm sport specific training with surfing, I'm going to do maybe like chops or I'm going to get on a BOSU ball and do all these twists and try to like simulate this kind of move. And that's fine, you know? Um, but like, that's kind of like moving ahead to maybe um, maybe a more complicated thought process uh, uh, before just getting strong with simple foundational movements. And for those trainers out there, that would be like everything you, you guys already know. It's the push pulls, it's the squat, it's the presses. And so 
I think you really can't go wrong starting simple and, and just learning those kind of foundational movements like how to bench press, how to squat, how to deadlift, you know, how to front squat, back squat, how to single limb deadlift, all those kind of things you can build capacity off of. And so um, if you train appropriately, you're going to you're going to build capacity in all those tissues, um, the muscles, the joints, the cartilage, the labrum of the shoulders and the, and the hips. And, and I think with doing that training, um, you build a mental toughness too, which kind of goes um, alongside of this like biopsychosocial uh, bio model of um, pain and in this case we'll say performance um, that makes a, a, a person resilient, you know. But if we took that 40-year-old surfer that's never really, doesn't have much experience working out or surfing, personally, I think if you just start training kind of like this fancy um, uh, surf-specific movement, I think personally that's a mistake. Um, I think there's a set like pre-rec strength that a surfer should have. And the fancy surf specific stuff probably has more value once that's achieved. Yeah. You know, so like um, there's really good trainers out there. We were talking about Jeremy Shepard one week and um, I was listening to him speak and it's like, you know, he, he's worked with guys. I think like he was talking about Joel Parkinson, I want to say. And, you know, like those guys travel and surf so much all year round that they're very rarely hunkered down for like four or five weeks at a time. So they're kind of in this like, well, a lot of those guys might say, I don't want to deadlift or get like do all this lifting when I'm going to get sore and I need to be like surfing the next day. So like a lot of those guys are incorporating some of that fancy kind of surf specific motor control, which is just like incorporating movements that are maybe more relevant to surfing with their um training um but again they're super advanced and they probably have enough um strength to satisfy their level of surfing whereas your guy who's 40 years old probably needs to build up some strength before maybe getting a bit more complicated yeah that makes total sense and then like looking at it the other way looking at someone that grew up surfing and already has all those specific movements, but hat doesn't train once they become adults. And I'm thinking of somebody in particular that keeps getting injured. That is an amazing surfer. I, I, I feel like I've heard um, that story quite a number of times from multiple local surfers that we work with. I mean, that's kind of my bread and butter. What well, you're about I, to I was say. just I was actually just thinking of John John. The guy's an oh, incredible yeah. surfer. Has been in right. the water his whole life, but mm -hmm. he's constantly injured from these crazy moves he's doing, for one. But would more official training have prevented those from happening? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's something I kind of ponder quite often, you know. Um, you know, when we, well, I think when you talk about someone like John John, the rules kind of go out the window a little bit. <laughs> so, like, I'll kind of put that as a disclaimer before I'm going to say what I'm about to say. Um, so if we if we all agree, John John has like superhuman talent, and that's like here, and most people's surfing talent is here. He can probably get away with like not getting strength training, 
yeah. or strength trained as much versus like someone who's average might benefit more from strength training. Um, but if we look at his uh, ACL tear that he had back when in that contest where uh, I think it was Brazil, he did a kick out and um, we, we, and he tore his knee in, in or his ACL on his knee in, which is one of the main um, kind of struts or ligaments that connect your femur or your thigh bone to your um, tibia, your shin bone, really common sports injury. And it's, and it's, it's, it's a tough one to come back from. If we, if we kind of looked at that footage, we classify it as a non-contact injury. And so what I mean by that is like a contact would be, you know, think of a sport like football where some big heavy guy, whoops, some big heavy guy kind of slammed into the side of your knee and put your knee in a funny angle and it tore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the non-contact one would be like, oh yeah, I'm playing soccer. I've, you know, played soccer all my life. And then I don't know what happened, but I kind of cut wrong and my knee just went. I heard this pop. No one was around. Right. And we believe that non-contact injuries can be prevented. Right. There's a lot of good research to suggest that we can prevent non-contact injuries. Contact injuries, probably not because things are going to happen in high risk sports. Right. So if we looked at John John's injury, we'd say, yeah, that looked like a non-contact injury. It didn't look like a lip kind of clipped him in the side of the knee. I looked like something kind of wonky happened and, um, and, um, and his knee tore, you know, it wasn't as aggressive as like an aerial we've seen him all do and stick where his knees are all funky and he didn't tear theirs. Yeah. He comes down and he buckles the back leg and his hips are right. twisted and he lands and he compresses and he comes out of it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I think your question was, um, should he be training or could that have been prevented? Could, could, yeah. Could training, I mean, is there research out there that, that you said there's research saying, suggesting that, that training can help prevent those types of injuries. It sounds like I already answered my question. Yeah, I think um, the short answer would be yes, and the long answer would be it depends. It's complicated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so the, there's been no research on surfers in that domain. Yeah. Um, and we all know surfing is like a really special sport because it's variable. No two waves are the same. Um, he could have hit a hiccup in that wave that, you know, that kind of caught him off guard. But, you know, a, a lot of the research has kind of looked at like athletes, like soccer players. You know, if we looked at the highest um, kind of genre of people that have non-contact ACL tears, that genre would be adolescent female soccer players. And so if we kind of looked at the contributing factors for what set those girls up for ACL non-traumatic or non-contact tears, we would say, well, there is um, uh, geometry, right? So um, there's this thing out, out there called the Q angle, which is a bit archaic in my mind because it's just based on a wider pelvis uh, with maybe a canted thigh bone and there's nothing girls can do about that. That's just their anatomy. But that's a potential culprit of things that set them up for potential tears. Uh, they grow faster than boys, so um, when we grow, uh, bones tend to grow first and the soft tissues tend to um, kind of go through this lag where they catch up second. So there might be a period of lapse there where um, maybe uh, their strength is kind of um, lagging there. 
and then we'd say reduced strength, reduced endurance, um, reduced power, reduced potentially proprioceptive training, which is kind of like balance and uh, things like that. And then we'd say things like maybe fatigue. So like um, maybe we have an athlete that's really strong, but um, she gets tired, you know, halfway through the game and the coach keeps playing her and her, you know, proprioception and her muscles um, tend to dec or tend to fatigue as the game goes on. And then she's more likely to, um, you know, put herself in a compromised position there. So all those things are things that we kind of chip away at as therapists, um, minus like some of the structural stuff that you can't do anything about. Um, when we recover from something like an ACL tear. So, you know, to go back to your question, um, all those things are you could are things that you could do preventatively if you're a high performance athlete to prevent those kind of things. You know, and um if we were a soccer player, we'd say, well what's our risk with soccer? Well, hamstring injuries, groin injuries, and Achilles injuries. If you're a basketball player, what's the risk there? Uh, knee, ACL, and Achilles injuries, right? Tennis, well, rotator cuff tears, tennis elbow, that's an easy one, right? And so you can kind of look at the risk with per sport and then train uh, to do all these neat things that would prevent those higher likelihood injuries. And, and if we looked at surfing, um, there was that uh, study I put up on Instagram where they um, kind of took inventory of what injuries are likely, right? And we all know shoulders are involved, and that's like those are usually tendinopathies or what get called impingements or kind of niggling shoulder things, potentially tears from paddling, maybe overuse. And then you got like the ankle injuries and the knee injuries, which are usually from people turning or doing something um, radical and and landing and, and, and putting themselves in an awkward position, but all of those things you can train to potentially reduce the likelihood of injury. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fascinating, man. And as we get older, I'm just thinking I got to protect, protect, protect more and work, work harder at, at, uh, at preventing these types of things from happening. You know, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I totally agree with you. You know, like if we kind of, um, the way I kind of look at a lot of things, a lot of, a lot of musculoskeletal injuries have no mechanism of injury. And, and, and so like when people come see me, I go, Hey Rob, how did you hurt your shoulder? And you go, well, I don't know. Yeah. I, um, nothing happened. And I go, well, what do you think? Did you do anything different? Were you training differently? Did you surf more consecutive days? Is there any kind of information that you would give me that can kind of tip me off to say this is contributing to my um, shoulder problem. And man, half the time people don't know, right? And that kind of goes along with niggling pain, like uh, musculoskeletal insidious onset injuries, i.e. no mechanism of injury, no trauma. They're poorly understood, man. So it's like we have ideas on um, contributing factors Right. Like and that goes back to some of that movement control stuff we were talking about last week. So a classic example would be, OK, Rob, your knee hurts. Um, yeah, you got a little uh, valgus there when you squat and when you go up and down stairs. So I'm going to put that on your list of things we can work on because that's a potential contributing factor.
right? And the reality is, is it's, it's probably a good guess, but we couldn't say that's 20 to 30 or 40% of what's going on, right? The reality is we're going to try a little bit of like training on that and see how it impacts your function uh, and pain and objective measures. Um, so do you get a hard job? <laughs> yeah, so do you. <laughs> no, mine's pretty easy. It's like, hey, man, you're doing this wrong. Fix it. Now you're better. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, there's a curve out there. And I, I, I guess this is an episode where I just butcher every reference. Um, <laughs> the, there's, there's a curve out there. And it's essentially the, the more you do something, the more you recognize you don't know. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and I've been doing this for, well, 12 years paid, uh, 15 years in, in, in total where I've been practicing as a physical therapist. And like, I've really kind of come to terms with, um, I'm very confident with what I don't know, you know, and, um, I'm okay saying, I don't know. I, I'm very comfortable saying, I don't know to a patient or a client, but like, I think having, um, confidence in uncertainty is is uh something that's very foreign in the medical community you know especially clients and patients they want answers right we want the diagnosis give me the mri give me the image give me the injection tell me what's going on and fix it right and no one really wants to hear like this mri is maybe one data point and it's maybe a guess right and then if if you get injected or you know, or whatever you do um, for that back problem or that knee problem and, and it doesn't get better, now you're really discouraged. Now you're even more uncertain. And um, and that leads to a lot of discouragement in, in, in chronic pain problems, which are like probably the most prevalent thing that I see in the clinic. Um, so it's, it, we've talked about it before. And I, I have a philosophy from my old job, actually in consulting where we would always say it's it's better to be approximately correct than exactly wrong because if you're trying to be exactly right you're going to be wrong because in in life in in and this was kind of a big eye opener when i studied math in college is that i learned that you can make 2 plus 2 equal 3 if you change the system it doesn't always equal 4 and i'm sitting there going what like it's it there's with science and with math, there is no exact. Everyone is brought up thinking, oh, that is the answer because I get that correct or I get it incorrect. It's one or the other. But as you study this, these fields, you, you realize that there's a lot of gray in there. There's a lot of approximation. The, these these uh, theories are, are just that. They're theories and they can be disproved 20 years later. Like all, these, all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, I believe that the sky is blue. And then 20 years later, no, the sky is actually red. And you're like, what? <laughs> you know, it's amazing. So that yeah. it's, that's, I think when you go through life and you, and you look at it from your perspective where you're like, hey, listen, I, I don't know everything and this is a data point and what we're gonna do is we're gonna collect as much data points so that we increase the probability of knowledge on this so we can take action instead of saying, yeah, it's A. And mm -hmm. then when, they, when they're wrong, when you're wrong, because you will be wrong at some point, you're like, okay, well, it wasn't A, now it's B. It's, it's almost the same method, but at least you're hitting it head on from the beginning. You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I love the way you kind of talk through that. Um, essentially what you described is um, a recipe for um, people to fail, you know, like, um, you know, so early in my career, like this would be probably a really common example, right? Let's say you've had low back pain and I know like, I guess we'll try to tie this to surfing somehow, but maybe, (laughs) maybe this is, maybe this is interesting. I don't know. Um, Let's say you have low back pain and you've had low back pain for, I don't know, four or five months. So in the realm of what we're now calling chronic, because it's been maybe over three months and that's sometimes a definition people use. You had no injury. You just developed pain one day, right? You come see me. I'm your physical therapist and I do this kind of stuff on you. I measure your leg length and I do a couple tests and I go, you know, Rob, here's what I think is going on. And this is common. And I used to say this to patients and it, um, and it really kind of beats me up that this was the way I used to think, but I think it was common. I'd say, Rob, I think you got a weak core. Um, I think you have one leg longer than the other. I think your, your spine is a little like kind of compressed in this little segment here. Let's call it L4, which is kind of near the bottom end of your low back, your lumbar spine moves a little bit much. It feels a little unstable to me. And so, uh, you're going to do all these remedial exercises to correct it. And meanwhile, I'm going to do some magic with my hands where I put your pelvis back in this alignment and uh, I'm going to feel good about what I do. And, um, (laughs) and you need to go home and do your homework to get your back pain better. And if you don't meet me halfway, you're not going to get better. Right. And now here's the backstory that I didn't hear because I didn't ask and I didn't really care to listen at the time. You've already gone to your doctor. You had an x-ray. That guy told you your discs are shit, right? He said your discs are squishing. Then you went to a spine doctor that he referred you to. You got an injection maybe. You got an MRI that showed a bunch of like little, uh, uh, little tearing, little fissures, maybe a bulge in your back. Then you went to a massage therapist and that guy said you had the tightest back he's ever seen in his life, (laughs) right? And then you went to a chiropractor who essentially said you're scoliosis and you're falling apart, you're out of alignment, and now you need to be dependent on that person once a week indefinitely, right? Like, you've already heard four or five different reasons with mine now of why your back decided to start hurting one day. Now, here's the deal. If you didn't get better with those injections, and if you didn't get better with that massage... And if you didn't get better with the Cairo, and if I show you some stuff and touch you in special ways and um, you don't get better there, all we're doing is building your uncertainty in your problem. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And so that's like complicated on so many um, biopsychosocial levels that like no wonder why chronic low back pain is the number one musculoskeletal problem and believe it or not chronic low back pain costs the u.s healthcare system more than any other um, ailment uh, more than any cardiovascular disease more than any heart disease Um, so what that tells people like me is we're not that good at understanding it and um, we need to take a step back and look at like what we're telling people and um, how we're training them and the words we use uh, because it's super duper complicated and what I've kind of taken maybe a little bit of like interest in is recognizing how complicated it is and trying to 
navigate myself and help people navigate through this uncertainty. So I'm much more comfortable saying, um, hey, Rob, um, not really sure why your back hurts, but here's what I'm looking at. Tell me your thoughts on this. Like uh, your balance, I think, could be better. I think um, these tests suggest that you're tight. Let's try these simple things and then let me know how that goes. Right. And how do we know we're getting better? Right. So if I asked you, how do you know your low back pain is getting better? That, you know, people get floored with that question all the time. I go, Rob, how are you going to tell me next time I see you if you're better or not? And people go, what are you talking about? It's not going to hurt. Yeah. I go, hold on. Like, pain goes away slow when it's chronic. It doesn't just go away. So let's change your definition, right? Like, my expectation of better is not your pain is gone or not. Right. And that'd be great if it was gone. But, you know, that'd be very rare. Right. Especially if you've had, if you've had pain for five months. Like we, we need to triangulate our progress right now. There's there's the subjective report, which is, hey, I feel less pain. Great. That sounds like a win. Right. But what are your objective measures? How far can you bend down to touch your toes? Um, how long can you stand before you create X amount out of 10 back pain? What's your function like? How far can you walk or how far can you paddle before causing how much pain? How many times do you wake up at night because of pain? How long does it take you to get back to sleep? How much stiffness do you have in the morning for how long, right? So if we're getting better, all those data points should suggest um, that we're moving in the right direction. But what happens is uh, something I've picked up on um, is people will say they're not getting better and I, and I typically follow up with, how do you know that? And they usually say stuff like, well, my back still hurts. Yeah. And, and, it'll, and it'll become apparent that they're not tracking other data points. All they're doing is tracking one data point, which is subjective pain, which is highly erratic when we have chronic pain. It goes up and down for no rhyme or reason. So it's a highly unreliable way of trying to like triangulate whether or not what we're doing is helping us. Yeah. And it's a, and it's a measurement that's an on or off switch. It's one or the other instead of a range, like what you were saying. Right. I mean, and, and it's too complicated to even fully understand it's influenced by mood and sleep and emotions. So did you have a fight with your spouse 10 minutes before coming in this door and now your pain's a little upticked? Like that's not going to be the best data point to suggest that what we are doing as a team for your back is going in the right direction or not. So um, those are kind of like novel conversations that I've been having with people over the past handful of years that I think have like really um, uh, helped me uh, help people kind of guide our own way through pain. And it's still a research-based approach um, and uh, it might be slightly novel in that sense. And like, it's not exactly what I learned in physical therapy school 15 some odd years ago. But you know what it's, and I'm going to relate this back to math because that's how my brain works. But you're getting closer to the answer and it's increasing the likelihood or the probability of it being correct it still could be 99% correct but we'll never quite make it to that 100% and that's being approximately correct rather than exactly wrong <laughs> yeah and I mean I think what do we got to do to get people there like um, 
it might be a cultural shift, right? Like um, people want answers. Sometimes we can't give them answers. We try to with, you know, an image or something like that. But like, you know, um, you know, one thing that kind of resonated with me last time we spoke was you said something like we're talking about slipping with paddling. And you're going like, hey, I slip when I sprint paddle, but I slip a little bit, not a lot. So the expectation isn't to be 100%, right? Like perfect. Like that's very rare in the world, you know, but like the expectation is going back to your client's comment of like kind of woo-woo, kumbaya. (laughs) Maybe it is a feeling, right? Maybe it is a feeling that gets you to execute to be more accurate than you were and you don't need to know all the like geometry and math that goes along in the, you know, when your hand enters the water, you just need to know what feeling the water feels like to you. Um, and that's more important. Um, it's all, it's all subjective and, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things. Surfing is a great metaphor for, because, you know, people come to me and they're like, hey, I'm not catching waves. Well, like you said, there's a million reasons why you're not catching waves. If I tell you one thing that I think is going to help you catch waves and you go out and it doesn't work, which is the highest likelihood of, not ha- of happening, of it actually not working, and then they're like, well, wait a minute, that didn't work. Well, you know how many variables have to go into that one thing working for you to catch that wave? Same with turns. Same with, you know, just getting out through the surf. Like, I think surfing is a great metaphor for that because the conditions are always changing. The scenarios on a wave are always changing. The wave itself is always changing. And it's more about adaptation and your ability to be flexible, not in a physical sense, but flexible in a mental sense on on reacting to those adaptations. So I, I think it's great, man. Right. And maybe robust or resilient is a good word too. Like, you know, if I ask you, Hey Rob, why aren't you catching waves? You probably might have an idea that you can tip me off, right? Like, Oh, I'm nervous to paddle to the pack. Okay. That's like a psychological social kind of thing. Like how do we get you more confident in yourself to kind of maybe inch there and kind of get in the mix? Maybe, maybe you're not sure how a lineup works. Maybe you're nervous because so-and-so is going to yell at you or whatever. Yeah, you got baggage maybe, you know, something you've tried it before and you've got this thing in the back of your head that just won't go away. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, you know, relating it back to the biopsychosocial model. You know, forgive me for talking a lot about that, but it's like if we related it to paddling, it would be bio would be the strength uh, in the biomechanics. Social would be what's the culture of that lineup? Am I in Santa Cruz and I don't live there? Am I on the east side and west side? I'm going to get barked at. Um, is skin dog out? You know, all those things. Um, and and, and psych, psychological might be um, I'm not confident in my skill, right? I'm nervous. Like I, I, I have an emotional hang up with um, trying to do this. I don't believe in myself. And so all those things might have... Um, might have a driving impact on what's holding you up from catching waves. And in some people, the bio might be super small, right? So that's where you and I probably don't help those people a lot. Maybe they need more coaching. That's where like maybe guys like Barry Green come in or um, maybe they just need to sit down and see how a lineup works, right? Um, But some people, their psych and social might be small. Maybe they just need to get strong, right? Like maybe they need technique more than the next person. So 
I think that's what's kind of fun about what you do and what I do. And, you know, I think your job's complicated. Um, but that's kind of what keeps it fun because, um, you know, you're, we're, we're constantly learning and adapting and trying to figure out how big those bubble drivers are for different folks to um, potentially help them in a good way. Yeah, speaking of, of learning and adapting, you know, we're like 40 minutes into this thing and we haven't even mentioned our sponsors. Oh, <laughs> We got to make the sponsors happy, man. What do uh, we do? Dude, doing? our sponsors are going to be mad. And um, <laughs> we should say that we, this show is brought to you. This science, we haven't even talked about the show itself. If people are tuning in for the first time. Uh, this show is, drops a little bit of science, a little bit of math, and with a lot of surfing. That's what we're talking about so far. Um, sponsored by saltypt.com. That is uh, my friend Jim. And surfingbattling.com. That's me. Uh, and we actually have one additional sponsor this week. It's very exciting. Um, a company called Red House Kitchen down in Imperial Beach, California. Um, I have to disclose that this is my sister-in-law's restaurant. Um, it is a family-run business, small business. Um, it's great foods. I'm biased, but it is great food. They can make tons of different types of food if you have a special diet. Um, it all tastes amazing. They're down in Imperial Beach. You, you can go to redhouseib.com to learn more. But one thing that I really especially like um, that, that, that really relates to surfing is that they are uh, an ocean-friendly restaurant. So by Surfrider Foundation, they have the certification of an ocean-friendly restaurant, which is these ocean, there's 655 ocean-friendly restaurants in the nation. And these are restaurants that um, have taken a pledge to essentially reduce um, waste that could harm our oceans. And one thing I'm really, really especially proud of my sister-in-law doing is she has taken a very active role in surf rider. She doesn't surf much. Um, my brother surfs more than she does. And, and she's taken a very active role at, at really focusing on keeping clean water in the Imperial Beach area um, because they're, they're right near Tijuana River. Uh, the river mouth and all the runoff there. And so she's been very active working on legislation and, um, and really grassroots uh, promotion of, of clean water, which is awesome. So um, if you're ever in South San Diego, IB, Coronado, go to Red, Red House Kitchen um, for awesome food. And if you're not near them, go to an ocean-friendly restaurant, look it up and, and support these small businesses, especially now. And one thing I saw on Instagram, uh, Connor Coffin, uh, he went into his local restaurant and he bought um, it's 250 or $350 worth of gift cards. And he distributed them out to, I think, first responders or hospital workers or people. And, and if you're not confident in going into restaurants yet, go buy gift cards, you know, support the local business and hand them out to the people that are working super hard um, or use them for later. So, um, Red House Kitchen, pretty awesome sponsor, man. That's cool. Yeah, pretty neat. Totally biased though. <laughs> That's okay. It's very, it's very good. It's very good. Um, wow, we've kind of covered a lot already. 